The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Is this the Glenn Show or is this Psychopolitica? I think this is the Glenn Show. I think this might be a bonus episode of the Glenn Show. Uh huh. Okay, then I should uh, tell people who we are. I'm Glenn Lowry. <laughs> I'm at Brown University in the Manhattan Institute. Uh, this is the Glenn Show. I'm with Nikita Petrov, who's creative director for the Glenn Show, with whom I've enjoyed uh, a wonderful uh, collegial relationship. And he's also the author of the newsletter Psychopolitica at uh, Substack, uh, and an interesting fellow in his own right. So we're talking, uh, Nikita's gonna be in the chair uh, because he's the expert on uh, the subject at hand. <laughs> well, I'll argue, I'll argue you are, but uh, yeah, let's get into okay. it. So we wanna talk about censorship and moderation and self-regulation online, regulation of speech online. And there are a few reasons for us to talk about this. One is we've been censored just now. YouTube deleted an hour-long episode of The Glenn Show uh, and gave us a warning to go with this decision. Uh, there's no elaboration on what exactly, like there's no timestamp. Here's a phrase or a sentence or a paragraph that was said that YouTube censors see as hate speech, but that's the charge. Somewhere in that hour-long conversation, something was said that they think is hate speech. Uh, we appealed this decision. Very quickly, the appeal got rejected. Again, no, there's no correspondence, no back and forth. Uh, and there's no further appeal. Uh, this first warning doesn't have any consequences, except that the next time it's going to be a strike which I think uh, prohibits us from posting anything new on YouTube for a week. And after the first strike comes the second, and then the third, and the third strike is a permanent deletion of the YouTube channel, which is a big deal. That's the first reason we might want to talk about censorship. Well, uh, the episode in question was an interview with Mark Goldblatt, who's the author of a book, uh, called uh, I Feel Therefore I Am the Triumph of Woke Subjectivism or Woke Subjectivity. That's that's Mark Goldblatt's book. You can find the episode at our Substack uh, page because we have posted it there, but YouTube has has taken down our, um, our uh, video of that conversation. Uh, I think I know why. I think I know what they objected to, which is Mark's discussion of transgenderism and his uh, opinion. It's his opinion. Uh, actually, it's not my opinion, but I think it's an interesting opinion that the disjunction between the reality of biological gender and the subjective experience of a person's identifying 
in one or another way with respect to gender is an affront to reason. This is in my summary of Marx's position. And he, in effect, I mean, he said this explicitly, he thinks gender dysphoria is a kind of mental illness that should be treated with sympathy and respect for those who are subject to it, but not with deference to their false claims about their, uh, about their gender. He thinks that that's a matter of fact, not a matter of opinion or subjective uh, feeling. So he could be right or wrong about that, but it's a view. And I think that that was what triggered it. But I don't know. And I, I, I agree that this is very eerie. You, you know, you, you put something up, you think you're having a discussion uh, that's based on thoughtful engagement with a sensitive question. And then the word comes that you've been warned that you violated community standards, that, you, that you're fomenting hateful speech that could possibly give license to violence. And you, and you, don't, you, you don't know exactly what you did that was supposedly uh, you know, transgressing in this way. Uh, you're left to surmise. You're left to um, to uh, have to guess at what the censors are not liking and what they are liking. That's that's very Orwellian. That that's that feels to me like something out of 1984. So, I, yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> and this this business, you've been warned. Yeah. Next comes a strike, and the strike will come with penalty. We'll suspend you for a period of time. Then comes a second strike, and you'll be suspended for a longer period, and then a third strike. And it puts me in this really weird position where I don't know if I go on talking about what has happened, for example, as we've done just now, explaining what Mark Goldblatt thought, which wasn't necessarily my thought, but it was a thought that he voiced in the show, would constitute yet another violation. In, in which case I'm moving on this escalator toward being uh, completely uh, removed from from being able to post at my YouTube channel, Glenn Lowry Show. <laughs> and, I, you know, ultimately this is, you know, people's livelihood. This is the way that if you're a podcaster or a, an internet personality that you have something to offer that you hope to attract people's support, including their financial support. Uh, and you're using this medium as a way of uh, being in touch with your with your audience. Uh, these censors have the power to take that away from you uh, without having to explain themselves. It, it, you know, we appealed. You know, our appeal is denied. No good reason is given. There's no actual discussion of the substance. It's 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 uh, infuriating and very disquieting. So. So I said there are a few reasons uh, we want to talk about this. This was the first one. Uh, what I hope is we're going to be able to talk about the kind of broader issue of how regulation of speech should be done, uh, if it should be done. Uh, and I think one of the reasons for YouTube to function the way it does, that is, there is no back and forth, there is no explanation, et cetera, et cetera, or the explanation is very, very minimal, is its scale. It's an incredible amount of content. If it yeah. is moderated on the platform level, like they're, they can't possibly be engaged in conversation with everything they delete. And some of the things, a lot of the things I bet that they delete is really beyond the, I mean, somebody can upload a 
you know, a video of uh, sex with a minor. That needs to be deleted. There is a beheading. That needs to be deleted. Uh, then somewhere, you know, you move further from that line, you go into the gray area. Decisions are made. I don't even, don't even know, and we don't know how much of these decisions, uh, how many of them are made by humans, how many of them are made by algorithms. But it's a problem. On the YouTube side, side it's a challenge, a technical kind of challenge. How do we go about regulating what goes onto our platform and what doesn't? I think the way they're doing it is, I don't like it. <laughs> being on the receiving side of this, uh, working on the Glenn Show and just being told you're being warned, that's not good. Uh, it's not good for us. I think it's not very good for society broadly. But if that's not good, then uh, some some other approach should be suggested. And here I come to the second reason uh, we might want to talk about these issues, moderation, censorship, free speech online, which is Substack a few weeks ago, maybe a month and a half ago, unveiled this new feature called Notes. And partly because of its structural differences uh, as compared to what newsletters are on Substack, and partly because people came, like new users came to the platform, uh, came to try this feature out, a debate about these issues began because, you know, somebody started posting and started receiving nasty comments or what they saw as nasty comments and they called on Substack to clean this up. You don't want this place to become infested with Nazis and racists and whatnot. And other people saw, said, this ain't how Substack works. If you don't like what somebody is saying, block them and move on. And, you know, people are arguing about it. And Substack leadership needs to make decisions, both kind of principal decisions, like how they want to approach this, but also structural technical decisions, what systems they're going to put in place for this new environment to be thriving and for inquiry and exchange of ideas to proceed in a fashion that uh, everybody would like or most people would like or the important people. Like, there are a lot of decisions here. Yeah. Before we move on to talking about the problem that Substack faces, I want to just make a couple of remarks about the general about the general issue based on um, our experience because I agree that uh, child pornography and then I suppose there's you know violence and you know I can easily invent cases like the ones that you cited beheading and so on that I wouldn't want to see freely posted and, and shared around because of the social damage that I imagine it would do but an opinion for example, the opinion that the election of 2020 in the presidential election was illegitimate. I, I, I don't see how you justify preventing somebody from saying that. Uh, you're, 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 you're imposing, I mean, it, it could be false. The claim could be false and then you could have a discussion about why it's false. But it's arguable about around the uh, margins about whether or not this or that incident rises to the level of, you know, I don't think the census should be in charge of that. It, the claim that uh, a trans uh, 
woman is actually a man who feels like they're a woman, but is not a real woman. I don't, I don't understand how you justify keeping somebody from saying that rather than having an argument about why it is that you think that they're wrong. It, is it really so self-evidently obvious that, uh, that that opinion is false? And the censor is then in the position of imposing a resolution of arguable questions on, on the public as opposed to protecting the public. Uh, I don't know. I, I probably have gotten myself canceled just by saying what I'm saying, because I actually don't believe that the election of 2020 was stolen. I don't believe that. And uh, neither am I, you know, uh, you know, adamant and uh, ideological in in my views about trans issues. But I, I just feel imposed upon to have. Uh, somebody sitting behind a desk somewhere. Who are these people? Where, where the hell do they get off telling me what I can think of, about these about these questions? That is very, very unsettling. Uh, so anyway, that was my speech. I, did, I didn't really have any pointed suggestion, just wanted to voice my, my unhappiness. I do have a suggestion. We'll get to it. Um... Okay, good. I guess my final little remark at the beginning to situate this conversation. You have been addressing these issues, censorship, self-censorship, spiral of silence, so forth, for a very long time. You're an actual academic. You you have a technical understanding of these issues. So I just want to highlight that because one thing that I'm trying to do here is... Uh, as I said, I do have a, an idea that I want to run by you related to sub, uh, Substack, and we'll see whether you like it or not. And uh, there's a pretty good chance that uh, people at Substack are going to listen to this conversation, and I wonder what they are going to think about it. But m- maybe more importantly than that, uh, I want to start this conversation, and I want this conversation to be broader than us discussing this on The Glenn Show. I think we are at a very interesting and kind of rare moment where a new place, a new platform uh, is taking shape, is growing. Uh, It may fail. It may succeed. I think it has pretty good chances of of succeeding spectacularly. And if it does, we want it to be a good place. And I think we would all be in in a better position if early on, some kind of relationship is established between the authors, the readers, and the owners of the platform so that it's not this one-sided thing like it is right now on YouTube where you're just told what what it's like. Uh, I'm hoping to kind of start this relationship. It's, it's already happening. The Substack team is actually very good at uh, listening to people's feedback. But I want to develop it further, and uh, whatever I or we uh, might have to say in the issue is just one thing. Other people might have other things to say. I just want this to become something that is being discussed continuously and addressed, and um, uh, the decision-making process, uh, I would like to involve the actual people who are using the platform. So that's as a way to... Uh, to situate this. 
Well, let me just say what my academic credentials are in this respect, uh, which are not many. I'm an economist, not a sociolinguist or not a, a legal scholar or anything like that in terms of free speech and censorship, not a philosopher, I'm an economist. But I did write a paper that has become something of a classic. It's published almost 30 years ago called Self-Censorship in Public Discourse, a theory of political correctness and related phenomena. We can link to it. Um, it was published in a sociology journal, a refereed academic journal called uh, Rationality and Society in 1994. And in it, I develop a theoretical framework for understanding the um, sort of intuitive uh, proposition that there's no such thing as free speech. I mean, you can have the legal right to say something, but you can't indemnify yourself from people reacting to what you've said in ways that might be socially adverse to you. You could be ostracized. You could be thought poorly of. And as a consequence of the fact that when people speak, they are not indemnified against negative reactions to what they say, they, to some degree, take into account and anticipate how people will react to what they say, and they may elect to not say what they really think out of a concern that the consequence of doing so will be to uh, harm them in one way or another, to lead to their being ostracized or being thought of poorly by their, by their fellows. And that's an interesting phenomenon that we see everywhere. No one says everything that they think without regard to anticipating how others will react. And that fact has implications. And the essay that I uh, have mentioned tries to develop in a systematic way, some of those, some of those implications. One of which, uh, which I'm keen to emphasize throughout that uh, paper, is that moral argument becomes itself a, a, a captive to the virtue signaling that we might engage in. And people don't take chances. Pe people who are uncertain and on the fence about important questions like abortion or affirmative action or gay rights or. Uh, whatever, Donald Trump or uh, uh, et cetera, that, you know, capitalism, <laughs> uh, you know, questions of, of, of uh, high import and, and contention and who are not themselves certain that the left or the right have it right, who kind of want to parse the questions and talk about them without committing themselves, uh, who want to venture, not fully develop thoughts so that they can be reacted to and the back and forth between people arguing can lead to a deeper understanding. People will be reluctant to get into that. They'll instead repair to formulaic responses that in effect convey that I'm on the right side of history or that avoid what the real deep questions are. And that was a concern of mine. So uh, that's, that's my background. I'm sorry to go on so long about that because we do want to talk about this wonderful platform that we are part of uh, developing, which is Substack, uh, and uh, the problem that won't go away, which is that content has to, in one way or another, be regulated. And then the question of how to develop that framework within um, our universe here at Substack. And that's what you are an expert on. Well, I don't know about an expert, but I do have ideas. Um, so... Uh, let's see, how do we start? Uh, we talked about YouTube, uh, how it works there. There's Twitter that uh, has recently changed its approach with the change of ownership. 
it used to have one kind of censorship problem, kind of similar to YouTube, or at least that's what I see as a problem where certain people were banned because there's a claim that uh, they engage in hate speech or whatever, some kind of generic formulation, and some of it's done algorithmically, and there's not a lot of uh, space for appeal. Now, with Musk in power, uh, it seems that it's business interests of Elon Musk that drive certain decisions, like when Substack unveiled notes, which some people describe as a Twitter clone or a Twitter alternative or a competition to Twitter, Musk banned links to Substack for a bit. I think, I think they're back now, but the image is not like pulled into the link. They, like they throttled to some extent. Um, and there was this whole thing with Matt Taibbi, who was a part of the Twitter yeah. file, uh, Twitter files situation. Uh, and he, when he saw that links to his Substack, which is his livelihood were being throttled, uh, he took it to, like, they, he sent him a text. What's up with this? And uh, Musk said, well, you can post things on Twitter instead. Um, and Matt didn't like that, and he said, I'm done with the platform. I'm moving to Substack. Uh, and then we'll get eventually to what Substack uh, is doing now, what, use, what it used to do and the challenge it's facing now, uh, because I think Notes is uh, a bit different from newsletters. But... Given that there are these different approaches to regulation of speech online, do you want to stake out your position broadly? Like, what do you think should be regulated and where do you think the limits of this regulation should uh, be? Uh, well, I just kind of hinted at the things that are uh, politically arguable uh, oughtn't to be uh, censored simply because they are on an unpopular side of the argument. Uh, I, I thought on the Twitter files front that the most disquieting disclosures were the involvement of federal agencies of, uh, you know, law enforcement and political interest in the decision-making at the platform about what accounts would be uh, shadow banned or uh, what kinds of uh, posts would be flagged for uh, scrutiny based upon the, the political interests of the parties involved and the connection between government and this private platform uh, seemed very disturbing to me. Uh, I don't know that it's any better to have commercial interests uh, such as those that you alluded to with Elon Musk uh, being uh, behind the decisions to to uh, to ban uh, or make it hard to find uh, people uh, at your platform. So I, but I don't have a I don't have a general response. So you ask me what's what's my position. I mean I'm mainly you know predisposed to a let a thousand flowers bloom position, a very light hand. Uh, if, if I ha if I have a comment in the comment section at our Substack that uh, is edgy, uh, as long as it doesn't lapse into explicit racist, uh, misogynistic, homophobic invective, it, 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 as long as it's not 
virulently anti-Semitic. Okay, I understand that these things require a definition, and that's the whole question. So <laughs> what is virulent? What is racist? You know, that's going to be somebody's judgment call at the end of the day, and people are going to disagree about it. But um, if, if it just makes someone uncomfortable, if it just challenges some, uh, uh, you know, powerfully held conviction, but is nevertheless an, an arguable, I, I don't, I'm sorry, I'm rambling. I, the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what to do. I mean, let, let me give an example. So what about ridicule? What, what, what about a comic who wants to make fun, you know, uh, of people? Is that, and it may, and it hurts. It hurts people to see themselves being made fun of. Uh, should that be banned? And and what about the interest that I might have as an editor of developing my own brand for my for my site or, or my newsletter or whatever, which is a community of people who are talking with each other, and then the well gets poisoned because somebody enters into that conversation and starts saying things that chill the whole discussion, that cause people, I don't want to be a part of this community if this is the way that they're going to talk about the Holocaust or about, you know, civil rights or about gay rights or whatever. This is not a place that I want to be. And then me, the curator of this community, the one who's kind of convening the conversation, uh, feeling that the vitality of the conversation has been diminished by relatively few hotheads who are dominating mm -hmm. the discussion with their bile and their bitterness and their anger and their, you know, anti this or anti that attitude don't i have as an editorial prerogative the responsibility not just the right but the responsibility to manage that and and not just let the garden grow wild with weeds you know so that there's no longer any aesthetic value to the to the enterprise because it's it's obscured and and distracted by all of this noise so it seems to me I do have that responsibility and that right um, as the editor of a, you know, community of discourse. Um, and uh, that that's a point that it, it also seems important to keep in mind. So I don't know. Uh, again, I'm, I think I'm just rambling here, Nikita, but I'm doing my best. Now, this is good. And uh, I think it's time we get into kind of specific territory to make it more particular and more uh, actionable. So let's talk about Substack. Uh, so what you just said, I think actually uh, describes, kind of sets the scene for Substack's own stand that's been articulated more than once. Uh, that's been, I w I've been very happy with it and um, I think it's been working beautifully for now but uh, it's facing some challenges now that notes are a part of the ecosystem. So the stance is, it's the authors and the readers who are in charge. Substack doesn't want to play censor. Uh, Substack wants to give its users the tools to cultivate their own communities uh, and their or on the comment section and so forth. So you, as the proprietor of the Glenn Lowry newsletter, you can ban people, you can delete comments. Uh, the tools are at your disposal, and that should be enough. So if 
you don't like, well, that's one part of the equation. You as the author uh, are in control of what you're creating and the space for community exchange that you uh, have developed. And then on the reader's side, they only read things they subscribe to. There is no, or rather they didn't used to be, uh, any algorithmic feed on Substack. The newsletters you read are ones you chose to subscribe to. If you don't like one, unsubscribe, and you're fine. You're you're not going to be assailed by people who want to harass you for whatever your positions or identity. And I think that's been working. The issue is now that Notes uh, is a part of the ecosystem, there is the default feed that you go into on Notes is not just things you subscribe to, but also suggestions. Uh, I actually don't know. I think they are yet to describe in full detail. They promised to do so at some point, but they haven't yet. Uh, how that feed is created. I think it's something like people you subscribe to and also people that you subscribe to recommend. So you as a, as an author of a newsletter, like you recommend Psychopolitica. Uh, so people who subscribe to Glenn Lowry when they go to notes might also see posts from me. I think there may be other criteria. Uh, the, the exhaustive list is not posted anywhere. But in any case, it's not just things you subscribe to. And that on the reader's side, uh, that's, you know, you might see things you didn't want to see. And then on the author's side, when I start posting things, it's not just my audience who reads it and are able to comment. And so I might see, I actually have seen, like I've posted something and I'm reading these comments that are clearly not from quote unquote my people like I this never happened in my newsletter these people are coming from elsewhere uh, and they have really developed angry kind of positions about things and so this question uh, rises to the top uh, the reason people start bringing moderation or censorship up is because they've encountered uh, people who they didn't want to encounter and so, and so now this needs to be addressed. So I guess this is where we're coming to my suggestion, which is I think Substack needs to uh, adjust what notes are to make it easier to comply with their original position, which is to say there needs to be an understanding that the comment section under any note is uh, a place that's controlled by the author of the note, of this note channel. Um, that person needs to have a lot of control. So you should be able to delete comments. You should be able to ban people permanently. And both the readers and authors need to be aware of this. And uh, for them to be aware of this, it needs to be intuitive. So... I don't want to get too technical. There are some like interface changes I might suggest for this to become like more evident. Like this is not just a shared space for everybody. This is the, the main feed is a collection of notes, but each of those comes from a domain under control of its 
author. Hold on, I need to I need to ask because I don't I don't really understand how it works. There's something called a notes channel, is there? I don't think there's a term for it. I think there should be. Uh, so uh, we, we should talk about how notes works. Yeah, uh, the authors of newsletters at Substack. Can anyone open a newsletter? with Substack or does that have to be agreed upon? And is there an, a, a vetting that Substack, Substack does before it permits someone to begin posting <coughs> at a Substack newsletter? There's no vetting. You register at Substack uh, and you can start a newsletter. And now you can also, if you have a newsletter, you can also start posting these notes. Um, Newsletters go into people's email inboxes. Notes don't. Uh, in order for you to start reading these notes, you need to go either in an appropriate place on the app or on the web. You go to substack.com, and one of the tabs is notes. And what you see on this homepage of the notes tab at first, the thing you see by default, is a tab called home, which shows you notes from what I just tried to describe. It's notes from authors of newsletters that you subscribe to, plus this other stuff uh, that Substack thinks uh, you might be interested in. And then there is a tab that's called subscribed, which means just the people you subscribe to, plus, I think, notes that people you subscribe to responded to. So if I'm not reading, uh, let's say, Andrew Sullivan, but you have responded to one of his notes, I'll see that particular note. Uh, and then they recently added something that I really actually like, uh, a tab called My Subscribers. Uh, that is, if you have a newsletter and you go to that tab, you'll see notes written by people who read your newsletter. So it's a window into your audience for uh, a newsletter author. Okay, so anyone who subscribes to a newsletter is free to post a note at that newsletter's notes channel? No, no. You, as the author of the newsletter, you're the one who have access to that. I'm the only one who can post a note, but people can comment? So people, any, no, anybody, anybody can write a note. The question is, who's going to see that note? Okay. Uh, so if people subscribe to that person, they'll see that note. If people subscribe to somebody who recommends that person, they'll see that note. And then there's this reversal thing going on where if you have a newsletter, you have a separate tab for notes written by your subscribers. Other people are not okay. going to see that collection. Okay. I reveal my <laughs> ignorance. I have not been spending enough time <laughs> with well, the notes this tab. New, this is a new place. I think even people who do spend a lot of time there, you know, are still not sure how it actually, exactly that it functions. And, and even if they are sure, they're not going to be in a couple of months because it's going to change. It's been changing. So uh, what is Musk afraid of? He says in the Taibi uh, conflict that 
notes could kill Twitter. Did um, I get that right? Yeah, I don't know if he believes it really can kill Twitter, but he sees it as competition. And he thinks he has no obligation to anybody to uh, allow his competition to use his platform to promote themselves. Okay. So, okay, so that's uh, that's my broad point. Uh, that uh, because right now Notes is, you know, it's hard to say right away how exactly this default feed is generated. You might encounter things you don't want to encounter. It raises these issues. I think the general kind of step here is to make it clear that this is not quite the town square. This is something like the town square where people do come together through these algorithms. But ultimately, every node is a part of a feed that's under control of the person who's who created it. And all participants should be aware of that. And this, you, you, it's interesting you said that not only you have the right to maintain your community, you also have the responsibility. I think this needs to be uh, kind of central. The users should be encouraged to think about the space that they create as their domain. If there's stuff going on there that's bad, it's in their right and responsibility to cultivate this, to, to weed out um, the people that you don't want to see that or ideas or positions or uh, statements that they see as dangerous. As distinct from Substack's responsibility. Exactly, exactly. So up until now, this has been the position of Substack. The censorship is probably not the word they would use. Moderation does not happen at the level of the platform, or rather it does in these clear-cut cases. Pornography is not allowed. Uh, I'm sure there are other things that are not, uh, you know, calls to violence or something. So there are specific things that uh, pretty much everybody would agree upon, like this, uh, we don't want this to be part of the public conversation, and Substack is, is going to take care of that. But other than that... It's on the users, on the readers and the authors to curate their experience and to cultivate the space that they are creating for themselves and their communities. So that, I think, should just be... Well, let me, let me say one technical thing uh, so that we're not just talking in circles. I think one step towards that would be to... In the interface, when I go to the homepage of notes, I want to see a list of people I subscribe to and and be that in the center and be able to click on a particular author and see all of their notes there so that I understand intuitively, like I don't have to have conversations about it. Just by going to this page, I see that this is stuff that I've subscribed to. This is, if I don't like something, I click unsubscribe. It doesn't all 
get into the same bucket where I'm starting to get confused what I'm seeing, what I'm not seeing. I should feel as a user, as a reader, I should feel complete control over my experience. And, you know, I don't have anybody to complain to if the things that I'm seeing are things that I chose to see. So I want to, you know, myself and then every other users to feel that control over their reading experience a little stronger than uh, than it is now. So that's one that sounds thing. like a good thing. Yeah. Uh, and then I have a, a more um, a more elaborate suggestion that again, this is just my suggestion. Uh, that doesn't have to be the way uh, things are done, but I want these kinds of ideas to be brought forth and debated, discussed, uh, and uh, you know, there's at least a hope that the actual people in charge are going to pay attention, respond, even if they respond negatively. I'd like there to be a conversation about all this, uh, and and the reason I part of the reason I want to bring it up with you is because of your credentials uh, in. You know, you, 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 you are good at thinking about incentives and consequences of certain structures. So this is a kind of thing like that. So the idea is that the thing that, that this idea is supposed to solve is the issue of self-regulation. So we want these communities, or rather I want these communities to be able to regulate themselves. Uh, and I'm proposing a tool for this. Uh, and this is not new. I think Reddit has a version of this. And I, uh, my personal experience with this kind of system is from an obscure Russian site uh, that plays a lot with these regulation, self-regulation techniques. But the idea is pretty simple. It is that people, in this case, we're talking about Substack and Substack nodes, I'm thinking about subscribers to a specific publication should be able to vote on any comment that they see upvoted or downvoted. And if the overall score of a comment is negative, so more people downvoted it than upvoted it, and it gets hidden. You can... Hidden? Hidden. So it's by default you just see that this comment has been hidden. If you click on it, you can then see it. Okay. But by default, it's removed from the conversation. Only people who want to see the thing that other people decided they don't want to see, only then uh, you you read the thing. With the ID of the commenter, it does make sense. A, a cumulative negative upvote, downvote will lead to the suppression of the comment available, but not, uh, but requiring an additional click in order to be seen. Mm -hmm. And would the author of the suppressed comment be uh, known to the user? Yes, every comment is signed as it is now. Yeah. Uh, and so it would remain that way. So okay. why I think this is a good idea, there are a few uh, scenarios, I guess, I can bring up that are interesting, I think, to think about. So one is something you've alluded to earlier. It is common that the problem with a specific comment section is like one guy. 
or two people. Most of the people there are perfectly able to engage in civil and interesting discourse, but there's like one rampant racist or anti-Semite or whatever, and he posts a lot. And you go into this comment section and it's mostly comments from uh, reasonable people, but this one guy has posted 20 different comments replying to other people and he's just spoiling the, the experience for everybody. With this system, his first comment is going to get downvoted pretty quickly and his subsequent comments are going to get downvoted pretty quickly because the rest of the community don't appreciate them. And so by default, you're not seeing this. You're seeing the number of downvotes. And if you see that uh, a comment gets like, a, you know, minus 200 score, you have a pretty good idea that you actually don't even need to check it out. If you see minus five, you might want to see what, what this is, whether you agree or don't agree, and maybe you expand the comment, you read it, and you think, no, this is actually, uh, you know, it's not that bad, and you upvote it. So there's this continuous self-regulation. Ah. Some parts of the public conversations get quieter and others louder based on how the overall community feel about them. Let me see. I'm understanding. Quieter and louder simply means suppressed and not made immediately available to the user versus uh, being right there to be read without further action by the user. That's what you mean by quieter or louder. That's that's the first level of it. And then you see the score. So, yeah, you know, there is a difference in the reader's experience uh, when they see a comment that, you know, has minus five versus minus 200, uh, you're more likely to click and expand on on some of these than on others. And then conversely, you get the positive vo uh, scores on some comments, and as you're scrolling through a long feed of comments, you might kind of skim through the ones that have zero or plus five, minus five, but when you see a plus 150, uh, you might pick that out pick that one out to pay uh, more attention to. So the entire conversation gets, um, you know, enters this kind of spectrum of this is something people here in this community approve of. This is something they don't approve of. You're not worried about um, hurting effects where I mean, the fact of a large number of upvotes has a kind of momentum that generates more upvotes and we end up with popularity contests that, uh, you know, if, if I say I know we're a community of people who hate Donald Trump and I say the most, you know, vicious kind of takedown of Donald Trump, he's, a, he's an idiot, he's an imbecile, I, whatever, and uh, a lot of people like the fact that we're all on the same side here and we end up with uh, that kind of talk getting more reward. So I'm, my comment now is oriented toward provoking upvotes by appealing to what I take to be the common sensibility of the, of the readership and, you know. So did anything I say make sense? The concern um, I have about popularity contests. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so 
this is definitely like this is part of the reason I think you know I've made suggestions to Substack over the years and some of them did materialize and I can't be sure that this is because I made that suggestion uh, because the ones that did materialize were the more kind of straightforward simple ones and maybe they're just thinking along the same lines as I do I don't expect this one to be like enacted because there are a lot of these things to think through. It's not obvious that this is a good solution. Uh, that's what I'm saying, why I'm saying there, I, what sure. I want to ask a conversation about this. So on the issue that you're bringing up, I think this is where this bit about culture of particular communities and your role as the gardener of your community comes into. Uh, there will be communities like the ones you've described, an echo chamber. This is where the Trump haters go and everybody is in agreement and anything that is not uh, in line with how this little community thinks is going to be downvoted. And I think that's okay. If that's what you want to have as a creator of uh a space online, why why shouldn't you have this? There will be, I think, or rather there can be, and uh, and I would encourage you know authors to take that up as a challenge and a responsibility, other kinds of communities where other kinds of culture is encouraged and developed. Um, and one example of a dynamic of of such uh such a culture that uh you know i would be uh, i would be more interested in than an echo chamber is one where this system i'm proposing encourages public debate so this again i'm basing this on some communities that i've been a part of where i've seen this in action this kind of system is in place and i've seen it uh, work in this way and the way is this. Uh, so you, let's say, post something, the conversation with Amy Wax. There's a lot of controversial things that are said. Uh, people have strong reactions. And somebody proposes, let's say, a critique of what Amy has said on the show. And it gets a lot of upvotes. Then this starts a thread and one of the comments to that original comment is a critique of the critique that actually has merit. And so even though the first comment gets a lot of upvotes, you can see that, you know, it's like people clapping. You're talking, think about, you know, have you seen these videos of uh, debates in the British Parliament? I have. You know what I'm talking about? There's like a guy's talking, there's booing, there's clapping. Yeah. yeah. This is supposed to be a part of the of how this conversation happens. There's a constant um, uh, reaction from the from the people who are not currently engaged in this conversation. It's people saying a man. It's people saying boo. And so somebody writes a comment that gets a lot of upvotes. It provokes responses. Some of those don't get a lot of attention. One of those gets also a lot of upvotes. Now you have something interesting. Now you have an exchange of ideas, a debate, where you immediately see how popular each retort is with this community. And 
um, like in my experience, I said that there's this uh, obscure Russian website that I've been a member of for I don't know how long, many, many years. And I remember being a teenager online, first engaging in these debates. And I remember that the system taught me a lot. Like, I liked to argue, but I also liked to, you know, my arguments to, to get claps. And so that made me learn how to formulate my argument in such a way that I'm not just talking to this one person I'm arguing with. I'm also aware that there's a group of people standing around us listening to it. And even if they don't agree with me at first, like that, this is the most interesting arguments to have. The first comment gets a lot of upvotes. You see that, okay, everybody's on the same page. This guy said something that I disagree with. Now I have an opportunity and a challenge to argue with what's popular and win the audience over. Now, this is not going to happen like this kind of culture of debate. It's not going to happen completely on its own. It's dependent on a particular community, uh, how people talk here. There's some of it is just example. You know, if you as, as the author of the newsletter that everybody came here to read and some of the people came here to read for money, you know, your voice carries a lot of weight for them. If you are able to engage in this kind of exchange in the comments and they see like this is how it's done, then more people are going to try to emulate this. And so you can model uh, public conversation, how a debate should be done, and your audience can kind of rise towards that. Again, there will be other people who are not going to be interested in this at all, and they're just going to be preaching to the choir. And I think that's fine too, as long as this is the first part of my suggestion, it's, clearly, it's clear that these are different communities that get connected in a kind of network of communities through these algorithms or whatever. I actually prefer, you know, very simple and straightforward algorithms that, you know, no AI involved. They actually, everybody knows how exactly that general feed is created. But there will be ways to kind of cross-pollinate. But I think this sense of ownership of your space and the tools for you and your audience to keep shaping this space uh, is what's interesting, is what can be a really powerful and can lead to a lot of emergent qualities that I would be really interested in seeing. What's the connection, I'm just curious, between notes as a vehicle for this kind of back and forth and the comments that are already available to people who uh, look at a post that um, our Substack and who want to comment on on the post and comment on each other's comments. So the way it is now, if I understand it correctly, first you might post a note that is not featured in your newsletter at all. So that's a separate kind of place. Secondly, you might publish an issue of your newsletter and repost it as a note, in which case the comments, uh, the comments that are left on the issue of the newsletter and the comments 
that are left on the note that is the repost of your newsletter, they end up in the same place. So that's that's actually very interesting. And I'm I'm kind of I haven't made up my mind on this. At first, I really liked it because there is this uh, notes gives somebody like me at least with not a huge audience more exposure. Like I can see there are new people coming in. Uh, and it's nice to have, so it, it feels like my audience got bigger. I got my people commenting and I got these newcomers in the same place. Uh, on the other hand, as I said, this, you know, broader reach leads to people who are not a part of my community, who don't have the same kind of uh, ways of behaving in the comment section. They are a part of this conversation now too. And some of them might spoil the mood. So th this is interesting. I, I do like this solution of theirs, but um, but we'll see how it develops. And, and uh, I might have more reservation if, as time goes by. I, I discovered the other day when I was scanning something that we posted at, uh, the sub at our Substack. I, and I, I wanted to send an outtake of it to one of my friends. And so I highlighted to copy and paste. And when I highlighted, I got a notification that I could automatically create a note from the highlight. And That's right. that makes it very easy for me to take <laughs> the material <laughs> from the newsletter or, you know, excerpts of material from the newsletter and put it up as a note to stimulate. That's right. And it's not just your newsletter too. You can be reading Matt Taibbi's newsletter and highlight a bit of that and turn that into a note of your own. Ah, okay. So, well, yeah, I'm glad to see you're thinking about this stuff. Uh, and, uh, hope that people, the higher ups, our betters at Substack are, are paying attention. Getting any feedback? Not on this. This is the first time I'm, I'm, proposing this idea, I did write a whole long post with other suggestions, did get some, you know, I did get a response from both the co-founders. That's, that's, that's a lot. Um, and, and I've been on notes, I've been sharing some ideas, some positive feedback there too. A version of some of the stuff that I've suggested even recently, I've seen materialized like the I told you there's a tab that's called my subscribers. So I can see notes written just by subscribers to my newsletter. Uh, I propose something more radical than this, of which this is a subset. My idea was to create a little dashboard like custom filters so I can, can create any number of tabs with any number of criteria applied there. It could be specific newsletters that I want to read. It could be Newsletters that are recommended by people I subscribe to could be subscribers to my newsletter, maybe subscribers to other newsletters. Like I would be able to read what Glenn Lowry's subscribers post. And there can be a lot of these, um, you know, on and off switches for me to curate my experience more precisely as a reader. Ah. Uh, this has gotten some positive responses, but not... Not not so much that they would actually enact the thing, but one subset of this idea uh, I did see materialize. Again, I'm not saying this is because like they got this idea from me, 
Um, but at least there is a conversation, like I'm getting some comments. Uh, so I guess, I guess that's all that I had to say. I wonder if there is anything else for us to, um, wonder about in this field. Are there other principles or approaches that we can come up with? Or do you have, you know, a reaction, uh, maybe not to this particular, uh, you know, technical suggestion that I'm proposing, but the principle of which this is an instantiation, which is we, or I'm saying I, want tools for me as a creator to curate uh, my space. I want tools as a reader to create my personal experience. And then what this suggestion of mine I guess introduces, I, I don't think I've seen this on Softstack so far, is tools for collective self-regulation for communities of subscribers to a certain newsletter. So it's not just that I curate my experience, but by upvoting or downvoting, I'm, I'm slightly adjusting the reading experience of others. Um, what do you think about this? Is that a direction of thought that uh, seems interesting to you as a creator on Substack? Yes. Um, I like that Substack uh, Central doesn't run the show, that each of us uh, contributors who are authors of newsletters would be responsible for curating our own uh, community. Uh, and I, I like this interactive idea of eliciting responses from an audience that can be the vehicle for, uh, you know, enhancing or suppressing the uh, uh, commentary. Um, I think this is a hard general problem. I, I don't have any words of wisdom at, at a high level of theory. Uh, I think, you know, we're going to have to do a little bit of trial and error kind of experimentation. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm glad that uh, we have the benefit of your uh, wisdom and experience to contribute to the working this thing out and that people are listening within Substack to uh, feedback from us uh, contributors uh, on how to how to run the show, because I, I very bullish on Substack. I'm, I'm very high on Substack as a, a new media phenomenon uh, that I think has tremendous potential. So me too. Okay, so then let's end here. Uh, as I said, my thing here is not like my particular ideas is what I want to to be materialized. Of course, I do, but yeah. more importantly, yeah. I want to start this conversation. I want like other newsletter writers, podcasters, and Substack to start having these conversations, and yeah. hopefully see Substack team and Substack leadership to weigh in on those and maybe ideas will emerge that will actually make it into the product. So that's, that's the, the pitch here. That's what I'm trying to do here. Okay. Well, glad to be talking with you about it. We'll, we'll. All right. Let's see where this leads. 
Okay, thank you, Glenn.